Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. I am looking forward to a conversation that we have set up with our guest, John Miller. He is the director of a new documentary film called Moundsville that's currently playing on PBS. It's going to be playing on PBS. This is the biography of a classic American town, Moundsville, West Virginia, with a population of 8,400. It's on the Ohio River where Appalachia meets the Midwest. And the story is told through the voices of residents. And the film diverts from the well-trod paths, opioids, coal, Trump, to trace the many forces that have buffeted this proud town, diminishing it, but also offering new promise and opportunity. So I'm looking forward to hearing about all of that. John, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here talking with you this morning. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And I, by the way, I want to point out for, for all of our listeners that we're recording this as part of the Beyond Politics show, but we also are probably going to put a version of it in the Great Ideas podcast. That's what really stood out to me from your description of the film, John, which is that this is about some of the stories that I think we're familiar with. Maybe they're a little stereotypical at this point, but also some of the promise and opportunities. And I think that 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 idea fits in very well to that great ideas show. So this this may show up in, in more than one podcast. That said, what brought you to Moundsville? Why, why look at this particular town? So I grew up in Belgium. My parents are Americans who migrated to Europe in the 1970s to uh, play music. My joke is they fled the terror of the Ford administration, but that's that's a joke. They settled in, they settled in Brussels. I grew up in Brussels speaking French and America was like the ancestral homeland. I moved to Pittsburgh in 2011 to cover mining and, and steel and metals for the Wall Street Journal. I had a midlife crisis that coincided with the 2016 election that made me want to tell a deeper story about America. And Moundsville is in West Virginia along the Ohio River, but really it could be anywhere in the country. It's, it's the kind of place that was um, you know, settled and built up on industry, had a, a cycle of, of, of real prosperity with the world's biggest toy factory and a bunch of really you know, glorious industries that employed a lot of people. And now it's, it's an economy based on a Walmart and uh, a Main Street a hospital and a prison. And it's all built around a Native American mound that's over 2000 years old. So in this one place, you can have these different layers of history in a way that's really unique in America where things tend to be newer. I, I grew up in a place with cathedrals over a thousand years old, you know, down the block from me. That's not the case in America. So the, in Moundsville, it is. In Moundsville, you have these layers. So what happened was after the, the election 2016, I thought, what can I do that can tell this deeper story about America? And where can I go to tell that story? And I had encountered Moundsville on previous trips of driving, covering the coal industry and the chemicals industry in West Virginia. And so I knew a lot of people there. I'd done a page one story for the Wall Street Journal about a guy who had started the, uh, what he called a paranormal hot dog stand. There's a big ghost tourism industry uh, in that part of the country too, which I think is very important to understand for post-industrial America. And if you think about what, you know, what the Make America Great Again message was about, it was kind of selling ghosts, kind of selling this idea of nostalgia. And I'm really glad your show is called Beyond Politics because I feel like the deeper story in America, what's really going on, is a lot of grief in places like this for what was lost. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that grief and to share it and not just brush it away, but also to say, okay, well, let's grieve, but then let's also look forward. And so in the film, you also have people who are doing new businesses, starting manufacturing with little, you know, smaller companies using robots and tourism, tech, these kinds of things. And it's really important to also look forward. So in Moundsville, to answer your question, I found all these different elements and 
we interviewed, I found a filmmaker. I'd never made a film before. We got a small grant, $4,000. And all we did was went down there for a year and just talked to a lot of people. So the film, it has, it's based on interviews. There's no voiceover. There's no outside experts, no academics. It's an oral history. It's really the story of the town through the voices of residents, but they're very thoughtful and, and it moves along quite fast. It's not one that just sort of slows down with talking heads. Like the story progresses through time from 2000 years ago to the future and covers everything from Native America to Walmart and shale gas. So in my mind, it accomplished what I wanted, which was to tell this deeper story about America. And like I said, this grief that Americans are feeling about, you know, this part of our, our, our history that was lost, this incredible boom after World War II that is now fading and causing a lot of suffering. So want to bookmark your thought about why this story is appropriate for a show called Beyond Politics or Great Ideas. It's appropriate for both. And I really will circle back to that. But before we get to that, I, I do want to pick up on something else you said, which is just how potentially representative this experience is that you captured in people's own organic voices, in their own thoughts, not foisted on them by people who went to elite Ivy League you know, educational experiences. How representative that is of so many places in America. My, I worked for five years for a member of Congress from Maine. He was one of the only members of Congress who never went to college. He was a mill worker for 28 years. He worked at the Great Northern Paper Company, the, the, the paper mill in, in Millinocket, Maine. Two days after he was elected to the US Congress, his paper mill shut down. All the people he knew and worked with were out of work. And so his experience is the same experience that you're, you're capturing in many ways for the people of Moundsville. And you were funded by the Arts Council in Pittsburgh. It's, it's also a kind of a post-industrial experience in, in, in larger cities and, and, and the towns that surround them. So I, I want to turn that statement that I just made, that's the way it strikes me, into a question. How representative do you think this is? Am I, am I onto something that, yes, we're talking about Moundsville, West Virginia, but what you're capturing is something deeper and that really should speak to lots of people across the country who are part of our podcast listening audience. I think it's incredibly representative because it's about these cycles of capitalism. And I believe in free enterprise. I'm a capitalist. Uh, you I wrote believe- for the Wall Street Journal, so I got a figure. Yes, but just, you know, it, it, you know, I, I'm a, a, like most Americans, I believe people should be able to start companies. But, you know, in the system and in this freedom and prosperity that makes America in many ways a great country still and always, you also have this loss. And I think Americans are not good at talking about what happens when your cycle ends, because it will, it always does. And in Moundsville, for example, they had this toy factory. They made rock'em, sock'em robots. They made the big wheel and great toy factory. People employed over a thousand people in the town. In the 1980s, what happened? Well, kids stopped playing with rock'em, sock'em robots. They started playing with video games. Is that anybody's fault? Was there some big bad politician who made a trade deal that you know closed that factory? No, the cycle of capitalism meant that it was time for that factory to close. And Americans are not good about talking about you know how that how that happens because it does happen. And because because of that, I think the story of Moundsville is representative because again, it captures that grief that we all need to face and that I don't think we're very good at facing. And I think politicians are not good at talking about it. I think we'd like to pretend that things can just, you know, go back to the way they were, but they can't. Time moves forward. And the mound re- reminds you of that the mound's 2000 years old was built by the Adena people and their civilization came and went. 
And you know, the 50s and 60s came and went and that's, it's over. And so you have to move on, you have to go forward. And again, the way in which I think Moundsville is representative, again, is capturing that grief that is endemic to capitalism, which has a lot of good features, but also has this loss you have to cope with when your cycle ends. Let's take just a moment because everything you just said really does come through in the organic voices of, of the people who you capture in the film. So let's just play a, a quick minute from the film and we'll come right back. Well, in the past, you always had a job. You always had somewhere to go. And you always had, you had success. You knew you had some, some place to go and get a job and you knew you could make a living. As a baby boomer, I grew up in the times when that, when that business was flourishing in Moundsville. In 1955, one of every three toys made in America was made by the Marks Toy Company. This, uh, this structure behind me is the former West Virginia State Penitentiary. Uh, it was ranked in the top five most violent institutions in the nation to the point where the Department of Justice actually nicknamed it Blood Alley. If you're out there on your own and you don't want to put out the energy and effort, you're going to suffer. And I've told this to my, grand my grandkids. I said, what do you want out of this world? You want to set the world on fire or you want enough for a weenie roast now and then? I think what sort of comes through is what I think a lot of people who are not from this region or maybe from the industrial heartland or from a small town like Millinocket, Maine. I think this is kind of what we picture. Look, I grew up in Manhattan, okay? And, and, and you grew up in Belgium. So we're, we're not exactly natives to, to these kinds of places in America. But I do think that it does fit the perception that many of us have. There is a sense of dislocation, economic loss, loss of opportunity. Is that, is that truly representative of a lot of what you found here? I mean, you alluded to it a moment ago, but is that a fair characterization of, of sort of the mood that pervades places like this? Um, it is. I mean, a way, of, a way of life was lost. I mean, for generations, people could work in the, uh, the same factory, fathers and sons and grandfathers, you know, unions supported them. And there was a whole structure that enabled this way of life. It's been lost. I mean, I also wanted to show in this film that, you know, most people in West Virginia are not suffering or lying in the streets dying of, of opioid abuse. Most people are not coal miners. Like, there's so much nuance and creativity that I think is lost. And, you know, it's not the kind of poverty that that will make you starve. I mean, if you work at Walmart and you make $12 an hour, it's not a great life, but it's not hell. And you can still have a good life. And there are people in these towns that find a lot of meaning in their community and have a lot of love for their community. And so I also wanted to show that, that it's not, you know, black and white. Like there are still in places like this, there's still very good functional, you know, communities and families and and people who are happy in a place. I mean, in, in Moundsville, you can buy a three-bedroom house with a yard for under $100,000. And so you don't need to be rich to have, to have a good life. So I also wanted to show that. So in, in that sense of dislocation, dislocation and despair, you're, you're right. But there's a lot of complexity and nuance there that I do think the parachute journalism uh, does miss. One of the things that I was hoping to capture, and again, I want people to go out and, and look this up on, on pbs.org, or you know, just scan through the old-fashioned way, the way we we used to go to a TV guide, maybe figure out when this film is going to be on. I I do want people to see the film, but one of the things I I, I was hoping you would just sort of preview for people is what are the demographics that we're talking about here. One of the things that we found so there's a famous effort from the well, famous in government circles from the federal level that started in the 1960s 
to create the Appalachian Regional Commission. It's a, it's a state-federal partnership that invests in this region in distressed economic areas. When I was working for that congressman, Mike Michaud from Maine, we looked to do the same thing for New England because along these ice belt counties at the top of America, you find a lot of the same economic conditions. One of the things that we had to add in to the definition of a distressed area was what we call out-migration, which is young people don't stick around. They, they don't see the opportunity there. And so what you see is an aging community. Is that characteristic of the demographics of this town? Another thing that stood out to me, by the way, was you have, you have a man speaking in the film very passionately about the best donut in the world, and he's a black man. And I was, I, I think it kind of belies a little bit of a, an outside perception of sort of racial, racial homogeneity here. So, so what kind of demographics are we picturing in a town like Moundsville? I'm really glad you brought that up. And I'm, I think it's really appropriate for this show because I think it's also a problem in politics that is almost never talked about. But the brain drain in this country in the last 40 years from places like Moundsville to Pittsburgh and New York City I think it's one of the biggest undercovered stories in the country. It explains our culture, it explains our politics, and people never talk about it. I don't really know why. I think maybe because Americans have this myth that it's always good to move on, to go find the bright lights in the big city, make a better life for yourself. It's part of our, our, our sort of foundational myth, and we don't like to go, go against that. But I think it's a huge problem when places like this lose their, their talented young people. And the, I mean, it's it, it, aging is, I mean, in the film, we have one guy explain that there's an opportunity to invest in, in uh, nursing homes. It would be a good uh, growth business in that part of the country. And yeah, it's, it's a huge issue. In West Virginia, they have a program to, they'll pay people to move back to West Virginia or move to West Virginia and, and live. They started this during the pandemic. And I think in, in policymakers in Appalachia saw the pandemic as an opportunity to try to draw in more remote workers. And I think that is part of the solution that people who want more space for their family and a kind of tighter community can find find it in, in places in West Virginia. In West Virginia, it's kind of like, it, it's a bunch of small towns. The biggest town is uh, less than 50,000 people. And so it's a bunch of small towns in a state of less than 2 million in a beautiful part of the country. And when we premiered Moundsville in, in the town itself, we had 170 people come, which was great. But, you know, they were all old and, and it kind of, you know, bummed me out a little bit to have this audience that was mostly older people. And, you know, I don't really know, I th there's no easy answer for places like this. I mean, I think you just have to manage it the best you can. And Population is going to decline inevitably as, as baby boomers start to die. Now, Gene Saunders, who you mentioned, is the only African-American mayor in the, the history of Moundsville, loves his town, very patriotic guy, loved Gene. I mean, he really, everybody's favorite character in the film. I wish we could have, should have put more of him in the film, actually. He was a- He made mind. me want a donut, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, well, there's a Dunkin' Donut coming to town now, and so I'm going to do a story about quality bake and how people are worried about quality bake survival when Duncan comes in the, this spring. But there, there aren't many African-Americans in Moundsville. It's it's 90, over 95% white. And Gene's family is one of the only ones. And I mean, West Virginia is more diverse than people think, but not a lot more diverse. It's, it's a pretty white state. There is there are a few Mexican immigrants too. And we have one, one in the film, Alexis Martinez, who is very interesting because he talks about visiting the mound and realizing that this land wasn't always occupied by by you know white Americans, it was uh, native land before, and you know it, it is more diverse. But I mean, the general stereotype that Appalachia is uh, a bunch of post-industrial towns with aging white people. I think I mean there's, there is there's a lot of truth to that, but it's not the only thing that's true. And I do want to get much more into obviously we I, I want to touch on politics a little bit and and kind of the the broader psychology. 
I just want to touch on one other element of economics that you alluded to here, this new program to get young people to move back during the pandemic. It's actually something that I've discussed when I've appeared with Howard Monroe on his West Virginia radio show before, that this is sort of a silver lining opportunity that some places, including West Virginia, have seen. It's The idea is, look, now that we're shifting to a lot more remote work, why wouldn't you consider living in a, a small town where you can buy a three-bedroom house for under $100,000, live in a beautiful place, nice, warm community, and you could do your work remotely? I used to work on internet technology policy back 25 years ago. And at the time, one of the ideas was if we could get broadband into towns like this, it would really even the playing field. It would actually create massive economic opportunity, not just for kind of individual workers who are part of larger companies, but also for small businesses. If you wanted to be part of a, a supply chain for a larger auto manufacturer, for example, and you needed to be able to deal with complex data transfers, you could do that in a small town if you had the broadband. It just doesn't seem like that promise has really played out. Is that the case? Is 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 the information technology revolution bypassing places like Moundsville and not creating the economic opportunity that we thought it might? I, I think you're, you're right. The opportunity is there and there needs to be a rebalancing. Like I said before, the, the brain drains and the undercovered story, people should talk about broadband expansion is one of the solutions. Moundsville has broadband, I believe, but a lot of the places in the southern part of the state don't where it gets more rural and more 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 remote but you're right and i think this should be part of the bigger conversation in america you know not just about like you know blue voters moving to red state or whatnot red states and whatnot, but the, the sort of economic and demographic rebalancing the country should not be a bunch of young prosperous people on the coast and then older graying towns on the inside like one thing I, i'm glad to contribute for the, the Moundsville project is how there is a revitalization happening in a lot of places across the country. And James Fallows in his Our Towns movie and, and book and, and, and foundation, a guy named Ben Spegan in, in Erie, and there's a sort of activists now who are holding up the lives and the communities that are being you know, brought back in, in places like this. Um, and they need help and they need support and they need to be part of this bigger conversation that you alluded to, which includes the expansion of broadband across the country, because that is the way we live now. And I just want to add to that author list, Farrah Stockman, who wrote an excellent book on this exact topic and uh, is slated to be a Beyond Politics guest, but probably not till the paperback comes out later this year. That, that sense of trying to figure out what's next. We've lost the toy factory that used to make Rock'em Sock'em robots. I remember Rock'em Sock'em robots. People of our vintage remember the ads, right? You, you knocked my block off, that kind of thing. I remember big wheels too. I don't understand the, the um, appeal of big wheels, but that was a thing. That was a thing when I was a kid. But those, those kinds of opportunities are gone. And it, it, I, I don't, I'm not surprised to find that the experience that comes through in the film is one of people really feeling a, a true sense of loss, like they've, like they've lost a family member. They're not seeing the opportunity in front of them. And so I want to turn that to the political side. You, you alluded a couple of minutes ago to make America great again. What did you hear in all of the footage you captured about Donald Trump, about his appeal, about the appeal of that slogan, about the appeal of the sense that he was all about bringing back 
the kind of experience that towns like Moundsville used to have. It's funny because the impetus to make Moundsville was totally the 2016 election and Trump. And I really wanted under that and explain it better than uh, I had been doing or, or that, you know, explain it in a really profound way. And we asked, we interviewed about 40 people. We asked every single one of them at the end of the interview. So we didn't, you know, annoy them. Uh, what they thought about Trump and about national politics. And their answers, to be honest, were not that interesting. They tended to repeat stuff they'd heard on TV. They, they tended to, you know, recycle slogans. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, like it's, not, it's not that it's not important to, to do political reporting in places like this and ask about Trump, but it's not what people know. They're not in Washington. They're not reading, you know, good reporting often about national politics. What they know about is what their parents did for a living. They know about what they're doing for a living. They know about their health care. They know about how their town is doing. And so realizing that the real richness in these interviews was in their actual lives made it a pretty easy call to just take Trump completely out of the documentary. And, you know, I think the the stuff about the ghosts speaks to, to, to MAGA and to this idea of selling this nostalgia of the 50s. But there's no question that the appeal of Trump in a place like Moundsville is this sort of restoration fantasy, that there was a real community. And in the film, I mean, we honor that. Like there was a tight-knit community. People really did pay more attention to each other and love each other in a way that's harder to do now when things are kind of fraying. You know, along with Eugene Saunders talking about segregation and, and how hard it was to be a Black person in Moundsville in the 50s. Like those things are also true. Like my favorite saying as a journalist is, Many things are true at the same time. And I think, again, the truth of the, the tightness and the, the health of these communities and how that was lost is a precious thing. And, and I think many people on the coast don't really acknowledge it. And Trump understood that and tapped into it. And what I heard about the politics was less about policy and, and you know the character of Trump, I think people know about. But what really appealed to them was this fantasy of, of restoration. And I think... If we can find a way to talk about that nostalgia and that fantasy in a way that is kind of organic and shares the grief and is healthy, then we can actually move beyond Trump and make it part of a conversation that makes sense to everybody and not, not to just sort of let Trump you know, take this, this dream and this nostalgia and this fantasy and, and use it just to his advantage. Follow up a little further on this thought, because... It... <laughs> It strays into an area that's a little bit of a hobby horse for me, which is the disc. And I've written about this. I, I, I've written about it on, on Alternet and Raw Story. And I, I have, it sounds like I'm saying my best friends are pollsters, but I truly do have former colleagues, people I've worked closely with, people I respect who are in the polling and survey research profession. And yet, with no disrespect to them, I truly d believe that there is a massive disconnect between the types of opinion research that we do in politics and the way real human beings think and talk and experience politics. And it feels like a real lost in translation exercise where the kinds of questions that, well, I, I'm, I, I got a master's degree from, from Harvard. And so the language that I use when I used to come up with polling questions is the way I think, I don't, I think the people in the, in that we want to talk to in a place like Moundsville are extremely intelligent. I, it's not, it's not any kind of a, 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 it's not kind of a disconnect that, that has to do with smarts. It has to do with language. It has to do with the way I would talk, someone like me or a pollster would talk and the way we would ask political questions. Do you support X? 
Are you more likely to vote for a candidate who says X? And what people are hearing and the kind of translation into the language and the terms that they would use. I'm just wondering what you make of that based on your experience there. To what degree, I mean, I know you just sort of said something along these lines a moment ago, but to what degree do you think people are not really experiencing what, what we think of, those of us who follow the news and follow politics closely, we think of politics a certain way. To what extent is this just kind of alien to them and they're, they're hearing it distorted through the other end of a, a telephone line? I mean, they're also reacting to, to the, the journalism and, and the media that they see. And I think one thing that was very clear to me in reporting Moundsville was how people have lost their, their sort of media literacy, to use, is I think, the right word. You know, the, the, the newspaper in Moundsville is shriveled. There's basically nobody left doing the work of journalism in Moundsville. And so when you when people consume media, they're not always sure, you know, what they're they're looking at. And you know, most people don't think, I think the big disconnect that you alluded to is most people don't think about politics as much as, as pollsters do. They, they, it's not a, always a big part of their life. And because of, 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 again, this decline in local journalism, their ability to calibrate, you know, what's going on at the national level isn't always as, as sort of shrewd as it was before. And because it's, it's really interesting data about how I'm generalizing here, but like 50 years ago, fewer people could name the, the vice president, but more people could name their congressman and name their, name their, their governor. And so again, national politics, I think has become less about the, the specific policies that pollsters like to ask about and more about this kind of general dream and general fantasy of, of what, you know, the future might look like. And that, you know, one thing that's striking, even in Moundsville, is you meet a lot of Obama Trump voters, which is always kind of jarring when you kind of start probing a little bit. But I mean, those were the two politicians who were able to sell the dream in the last 15 years. And so I think that's the that, that's the disconnect is that pollsters ask about policy. And what voters are thinking about is this more emotional kind of fantasy that is that they see in national media and they're not always able to untangle again because of this declining news literacy. Well, you know, my in my own experience, again, it's not a matter of intelligence. I, I worked for, like I said, Congressman Mike Michaud from Maine. He's an, an extremely intelligent man. He, I, and I was writing a speech for him once where I was talking about the budget deficit. And I said that, you know, in the speech, we're, we're coming to the precipice. And he said, Matt, that's not a word. There, there's a there's $100 word for you. That's not a word that people in my town would use. And so it just, it, it just kind of goes to the point that I, I just continue to see a massive disconnect. Another place where I see a, a massive disconnect is recently we've seen sort of an odd pattern where we were brought up politically to, to, to believe that what matters, as James Carville once put it, it's the economy stupid, right? The economy is what matters. And for most measurable characteristics, the economy under President Biden has been doing really well. It's been recovering really well. A lot of things have been going really well, and yet his approval rating is really, really bad. And so there's a little bit of a failure to match up there. And sort of the glib explanation of it is, well, it's inflation. You know, that's, that, that's how most people experience the economy, except it's not really, because people experience 
their jobs and their job prospects and their their real wages and the, their level of healthcare and all of those indicators are going really really well. And so to me what I think the disconnect taps into is a level of despair, a level of sadness and depression in America what Jimmy Carter would have called a great malaise that I don't think we've described particularly well but I think that your film maybe does does that wash for you is there is there an overall mood of but aside from the the stereotype about opioids and 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 job loss is there sort of a mood of of despair and, and sadness sort of pervading people's outlook in Moundsville. Yes, and I, I'm really glad we're having this conversation, Matt, because I, I think it's highlighting to me, again, what is valuable in, in the film. And there's so many voices. Sometimes I, I see it differently when I watch it again. But the grief I, I talked about in the beginning of our conversation, I think that's the key to really understand what's happening and what's what beneath all the shifts in politics. I mean, look at West Virginia, a state that for generations was as reliably democratic as they come, where I think JFK made his acceptance speech in Wheeling. I, I looked that up, but there's some big JFK presidency candidacy moment in West Virginia. And in a generation has flipped from solid blue to solid red. You know, West Virginia is a state that's always had poverty, has always struggled, has always had kind of economic uncertainty around it. So, you know, what changed? And I think it's in this understanding of the the grief and the, and the fantasy of restoration that the kind of Tea Party Trump wing of the Republican Party was better at understanding and tapping into than, than the Democrats. And the, the sadness, which you talked about in this malaise, it's a big thing that's true. And it's really important to understand and to share, frankly, because we're all part of the system that makes places like Moundsville rise and fall and, and creates this kind of inevitable suffering because no factory lasts forever and no community can have the same employer forever. And it's really important to understand how capitalism works in that regard and not just kind of say, well, you know, tough luck, like, you know, figure out something else to do because that's not always possible. And coal miners can't always become, you know, software engineers to follow or solar the, panel installers. Or solar panel. Yes. And there's no easy answer. Like, obviously, you know, you can't have a town live on the dole forever, but maybe for a generation, there are people on government support, but you, you do have to have a plan to move forward. And again, understanding that that is really important. And in the film, we also have, like I said, we have a back-to-land farming couple who's doing something new. We have this factory that manufactures cabinets with only 14 employees and a bunch of robots made in Germany. But you know what? That is what manufacturing looks like nowadays. And that's not going to change. Like if manufacturing comes back to this country, it is going to be with a lot of robots and it's not going to employ a thousand people. And so I want to show the way forward to this film, but also I don't think you can go forward until you really accept the grief and acknowledge it and tell people in Moundsville, you know, there might have been some racism there in the 50s, but it's also okay and it's good even to mourn something precious they had in the 50s that was lost. Well, to go back to your earlier point, this is exactly why we wanted to call this show Beyond Politics, because there's a very facile surface level way to analyze politics. But I think what your film is getting at and what I like to get at on this show is this deeper level of what's going on in, in, in people's experience and psyche and economics and, and, and personal lives underneath it. What, what ends up happening you know, when, when people take a political action like voting or responding to a pollster is just an aggregation of all of these deeper forces. And that kind of connects to the point about polling. When you ask people, do you approve of the job that the president of the United States is doing? 
I think what they're hearing is a very different question. I think what they're hearing is, are you happy right now? It's a lot closer to that right track, wrong track question. And should we be surprised based on the level of despair and grief and searching for ghosts of what used to be that you found in the Moundsville film? Should we be surprised that so many Americans, despite the top level economic numbers are saying, no, I'm unhappy. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good with the direction that things are going. That I think is the heart of the disconnect that's very worth exploring. And I'm so glad you did in your film. With that said, we're in danger of maybe making this a little bit of a bummer. And I don't think your film is a total bummer. I, I don't think I'd be doing a very good job of urging people to go see it if I said, this is, this is, really, gonna, this is really gonna mess you up. You're, you're not gonna enjoy this experience. You, you've alluded several times to, there is kind of a path forward. There, there is a hopeful air in this about people figuring it out, figuring out, you alluded to the factory that, that uses robots. What does that look like? What, what kind of comes through here in terms of the hopeful path forward for the future? So I, I'm a journalist at heart. And so my politics are basically the, the truth. I mean, I, I enjoy, you know, I, I think that, you know, looking at reality is the first path, the first way toward forward, uh, looking at reality, accepting that these towns will have lower populations, the economy is going to be different. And it's funny, you know, talking about grief, I just realized that, you know, I think Biden really is somebody who understands that and talk, he talks a lot about grief. And I think that part of his message is, you know, right and true and will probably be appreciated more once you know his his term has ended i don't think he's very good at, at explaining or, or kind of selling the way forward and i think americans do need to talk about that i think you, you gotta be blunt like there are places like this that you know when these people who are in their 60s are all in their 80s i mean who's going to take out the garbage like there's some real problems coming down the road still for communities like moundsville so being realistic about that looking at reality but there's tremendous resources also i mean there's factories that have been abandoned, leaving buildings that are not very expensive to buy that you can, you know, buy for a song and create something new. In, in Pittsburgh, where I live, there's tons of great restaurants, partly because a lot of chefs burned out of New York and couldn't afford to do, do the work there anymore and came to Pittsburgh and opened restaurants. So there is opportunity in the kind of depopulated abandoned areas, whether it's Moundsville or, or, or Pittsburgh. And so kind of explaining that and, and, and arguing for this rebalancing and capturing the hope that there is in, in rebuilding that Again, like Jim Fallows has done a great job of doing, and I hope my, my film contributes to. I think, you know, selling that and, and getting Americans excited about that, that we have this big, great country that has all these places that have affordable land and affordable buildings and human capital and, and rivers. Like, there's a lot of cool stuff to do, even if you're not in, in, in Brooklyn, you know? And so getting people excited about the in, inner, inside of the country and, and what can be rebuilt, I think is, is uh, the way forward. As a New York native, look, you know, no diss on Brooklyn, but you, you don't have to go live in Brooklyn. You really don't. <laughs> is, there, is there a story, maybe something that, that ended up on the cutting room floor, or maybe something that you explored a little bit in the movie that, that made it to air, but that really grabbed you, Some, something that, that stood out that, 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 and that will really stay with you from, from your experience? There is. There's a man in the film named Fred Wilkerson. Actually, there's two of them. It's father and son, Fred Wilkerson Jr. and Sr. So Fred Wilkerson Sr. worked at Fostoria Glass in this part of the country along the Ohio River, which was in the 50s, kind of like Manchester in the 1890s or, or Shanghai today, one of the world's great manufacturing centers. They made shoes, they made shirts, they made cigars, not just 
glass, coal, and steel. But in, in Moundsville, they, this, this factory, Fastoria made glass. So Fred Wilkinson uh, Sr. works there for you know 30 years, gets laid off in the 80s when the, the plant closes. What does he do? He doesn't you know, give up or go work at Walmart. He wants to keep making glass. So he opens this little furnace in his backyard. He hires his son, Fred Wilkinson Jr. And together, this two-man shop, father and son, they make glass. I mean, using like really heavy-duty equipment that I would kill myself trying to use like real professional glass making equipment and they sell it online and you can Google it. There's a story about it on, on my website, mounsville.org. And I'm just inspired by this because these guys, there was a corporate structure that supported Fred Wilkinson for generation for 30 years. It, it went away and he didn't abandon his vocation. He wanted to keep making glass. And so that kind of toughness and resiliency and ability to take a punch, I think is very American. And I think what does unite America, knowing how to move forward when these cycles of capitalism end I think that's a very American and great thing about this country. I think it'd be nice if we sort of said that more often and, and understood that we're in this together to, to navigate these cycles of capitalism like the Wilkerson's. If you were sort of advising, let's say um, a friend of yours or you know the tens of thousands of listeners who maybe are listening to this right now and are, are gonna go click and, and, and try and find this, this film. If you were, so if you were saying to a friend of yours, hey, I really want you to notice this in the film when you sit down to watch it. What would you tell them? What what should people kind of keep an eye out for, or whether it's a vibe or a moment or or sort of a takeaway? I think I go back to the mound, which uh, was built by the Adena people over two thousand years ago, because again, it's this reminder that things change and that things move forward. And the thing to look out for in the film is the acceptance of that spirit. Frankly, I don't know if it's because. Moundsville has the mound that reminds people of that, but there was a kind of like hard-headedness and you know toughness in people's acceptance of change and looking forward that I found in Moundsville that I think is inspirational and that we can all all learn from. And one more on kind of this this theme of, of of things to look out for. After all of your work in the town over the course of a year and all the footage and and, and the interviews, is there something that people get wrong about a town like this? and the people who live there, a, a misimpression that you hope to correct in, in, in the course of people watching this film? I think there is. I think the, the, the misimpression is that people aren't thoughtful because I think everybody is thoughtful when they're talking about stuff they know about, when they're talking about firsthand information. And the, the advice that I give and that Jim Fallows gives is if you go visit a place like this, don't ask about Trump because you're not going to get anywhere. And because you're not going to get anything thoughtful because they don't really know about Trump. They know about what they see on national television or they know what they see on Twitter, but what they really know about is their lives. So ask them about their lives and people are every, every person, every human being, you know, reckons with a daily, you know, symphony of joy and sorrow and has to navigate, you know, the, the hand they're dealt and people are always thoughtful because that's so hard. And because it, it generates a kind of wisdom to have to suffer through you know, whatever life you're given. And so if you ask about people's lives, you're going to get thoughtful comment. So as we wind toward the end of our show here, uh, I want to give people the, the, the details here. So I've already alluded uh, a couple of times to the fact that the film is available on PBS. Any particular times that people should look for, or if people want to find it, how do they do that? So the film is available uh, to all 338 PBS affiliates around the country. I don't know when it plays. Sometimes I, I see, oh, it's playing in Idaho at two in the morning. So you have to check your, check your local listings. It's also available on pbs.org. All you got to do is go there and search for Moundsville. 
It's available on different apps like Roku. If you just search for Moundsville, there's a longer director's cut available for $3 on moundsville.org. And moundsville.org is the central site. It's also a magazine where I've collected over a hundred stories about everything from Lady Gaga's mom who grew up in Moundsville to Brad Paisley, Brad Paisley, the country stars from Moundsville to the mound, a little more history on the mound about the penitentiary. People used to go play prison, watch the prisoners play baseball in the fifties in the penitentiary, just like a lot of different things I, I couldn't really fit in. I, I, this morning I posted a review of Dope Sick, the uh, Hulu dot, uh, series about the opioid epidemic. So moundsville.org is kind of the central site or pbs.org. People can go to moundsville.org. You know, as a veteran journalist, I think you and I are guilty of, of what's called burying the lead. Lady Gaga's mom is from Moundsville. Why on earth didn't I put that into the introduction to the show? I, I don't know. That's of, of all of the incredibly deep, important, interesting, I mean, really eye-opening things that we've discussed. I think the thing that Maybe this is a sad commentary in America, but the thing that would make people go run to watch this film is Lady Gaga's mom. With that, John Miller, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics and for running us through this really interesting film. Thanks so much for having me.